Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 12 through verse 20. I invite you to turn there. As you're turning there, my name is Howard Ikesy. My wife and I, my wife Jamie and I have been coming here to Cross Point since 2019. We're thankful to have our two youngest children here with us this morning. Uh, Luke, Luke and Megan, his wife, and their children, and Garrett and Ellie, our daughter. Okay, Acts chapter 1 in the CSB translation. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went in, went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of the people who were together was about 120. And said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known among all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field is called Hedekeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks, brother. So last Sunday, we began a a new series working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, We will get to or through chapter 7 by Thanksgiving, and then we'll pick it back up in January, and we'll finish up next summer at some point. Along this journey, one posture that we'll see is the early church exhibit that of dependence. Not upon themselves, but upon our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Dependence meaning reliance. The early church wasn't going to launch out in mission in their own strength, but rather only in a reliance upon a dependence in the Lord who would do the work as they walked by faith. At the core of dependence is trust. What we depend upon We're saying we trust Him. We don't depend upon something or someone without trusting in that something or someone. As we move into the next 20 years as a church, our our church is marked by a growing dependence upon the Lord, a trust in Him. And if our collective church is to be that way, that means our individual lives as we scatter from this place other six days of the week must be marked by a trust in, a dependence upon the Lord. So what does dependence look like? How do we live that out? 
How does it reveal itself in the early church? Well, here in chapter 1, as this early, as the story of the early church begins, I believe we see some markers of their utter dependence upon and trust in the Lord. And what's the context of the story that we're in? Last week in verses 1 through 11, we saw that the book of Acts was written by Luke. Volume 1 was Gospel of Luke. Acts, volume 2, the sequel to it. And so the Gospel of Luke is the, is the account of all that Jesus began to teach and do. And then Acts, volume 2, is the ongoing story of the works of the Son of God through the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God. Remember, we're not working our way through the book of Acts as if this is a museum of dead artifacts, but rather as present-day missionaries to be encouraged as the people of God as we live on mission for Him in our context, in our day. And so last week, we see that Jesus commands these disciples to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus will ascend and depart, and he's commanding them that in their waiting, they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they will be his witnesses from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. Then verses 9 through 11 say this, after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So then we pick up the, uh, pick up the story in verse 12, and what we'll see in this section is the early church expressing their dependence upon the Lord through three things, their obedience to his word and their prayerful practice of, of a life of prayer and then their unity with one another within the church. So then verse 12, it begins this way. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. And if you have a Bible on your lap, look at verse 4. In the same chapter, it says, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. And, And so what did the disciples do? Well, verse 12 says, they obeyed his words. They did what Jesus commanded them to do. They returned to Jerusalem. They didn't hold a vote. Should we do this? They didn't check the winds of culture and say, now which way is culture going? Roman culture? Oh, I don't know. This might swim upstream upstream against that. They didn't wait and think, well, let's see if that's really what he means. Maybe not. They certainly didn't say to themselves, well, we've been around the resurrected Jesus in bodily form, who then we saw witness ascend to heaven, told us to wait in Jerusalem. You know, we saw all that, guys, but I think we have a better idea than Jesus. They certainly didn't say that. We read verse 12, and we almost miss the the very simple account of the disciples' obedience. And listen, you don't obey his words unless you trust his words. One big reason you and I sometimes lag or resist his good and loving commands for our lives is because we are hesitating to trust him. That we actually think our ways and wisdom are better. When in fact his ways and wisdom are proven trustworthy over the centuries and are of a completely different echelon in their wisdom and ways than our own. Let's place ourselves in the sandals of these disciples. Not that long ago, they'd witnessed the betrayal, arrest, beatings, the public crucifixion of Jesus, 
then three days later, and then the 40 days that followed, they, along with others, hundreds of others, have witnessed and heard and touched and ate with the resurrected Jesus. Not a ghost, not a spirit, but bodily form. And then they just witnessed him right off on a cloud. They're all in on his word. They're all in. They're trusting in and depending upon you, Lord. What, what Jesus said he would do in the Gospels has now come to pass. So as it relates to the words of Jesus, these disciples are not going to hesitate. Brothers and sisters, we are walking in the same footsteps of these disciples. The historically accurate accounts of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus are before us in the scriptures. His, words is, his word is trustworthy, my friends. Listen to how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 119. Lord, your word is faithful. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is for all generations. You establish the earth and it stands firm. Your judgments stand firm today for all things are your servants. If your instruction had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. The psalmist says then, I will never forget your precepts for you have given me life through them. His word is forever fixed, faithful. It stands firm And to follow his instruction leads to, the psalmist says, delight. It leads to our life. The disciples return to Jerusalem, not in drudgery, not in doom, but in delight, in joy. For the trustworthy and faithful Lord is for them, leading them, and his promise of the Spirit will come to pass. This return to the city is around two-thirds to three-quarters of a mile walk for these disciples. It won't be the last time they obey his words to them. In fact, The entire book of Acts is an account of these disciples living in accordance to, in obedience, and faithful obedience to the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. They return, they go to a room upstairs, there's there's speculation whether or not this was the same room that they had gathered in for the Last Supper prior to the arrest and prior to the uh, crucifixion. Whether it was or not, the disciples are finding themselves in an upper room in Jerusalem, And you know that they are recalling the experiences that they had had and walked with Jesus just weeks prior. How Jesus said words such as these, John 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Or John 16, 7, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth, Jesus says, it is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And what Jesus says he will do, he does. And next week, as we move into Acts 2, we will see another promise come to pass. And so Luke is describing this group of disciples and followers of Jesus who are assembled in this upper room. He lists the 11 apostles by name. Originally, there had been 12. Judas ends up betraying and committing suicide, which he'll talk about later in this passage. And along with 11, there are Women disciples, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time she's mentioned in the scriptures. And in addition, Jesus' brothers are there as well. Two of those brothers would have been James and Jude, who became leaders in the early church, who wrote the books of James and Jude. They weren't always leaders, though. In fact, early on in Jesus' ministry, they were not followers, they were not believers. They were trying to dissuade Jesus, saying, you're out of your mind, stop speaking. Stop teaching. You're out of your mind, brother Jesus. But the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, it changes everything for them. 
They move from unbelief to belief. James, for instance, ends up leading a church in Jerusalem after he converts. He remains a leader in that church for 10 plus years, and then he's killed for his faith in AD 62. Historians say he was either stoned or thrown down from the temple tower. You don't become a martyr for Christ unless you first believe and wholeheartedly trust that Jesus is the Savior of the world and nothing can separate you from his love. It's a transition from unbelief to belief that we see in these brothers. Knowing and being known by Jesus, being loved, forgiven, set free by Christ, it's radically changed the direction of this 120. And this eclectic and radically changed group of followers remain gathered in this room because they trust the words of Jesus. They wait in expectation for the Spirit, and it leads them to this practice of prayer. Verse 14, they all were continually united in prayer. Obedience to God's word reveals a dependence and trust in the Lord, and so does prayer. In my life, in, my, in the seasons where I'm lacking in a spirit of prayerfulness, when I'm prone to go my whole day and not talk to the Lord or confess my need for him or my desire to do life with him or empowered by him, when I'm not praying, it, it reveals I'm not depending on him. Instead, I'm depending on me as if that's a good bet. I mean, it reveals a self-sufficiency, which is a pattern of the world, not a spirit dependency, which is a pattern of the New Testament church and Christ followers. A little habit I've been trying to build into my mornings, either before I roll my middle-aged body out of bed or as I'm driving to work or brushing my teeth, I pray the lyric and sometimes I sing the lyric from Matt Mars, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to set my, my heart, my eyes upon the Lord. Let him be the focus as my day begins. So, for instance, on my drive to the office sometimes, I don't want country music or whatever music, whatever channel blaring in my ears. I just want to be quiet. I just want to be silent before the Lord. I want an opportunity to pray, to listen for the Lord. When my mind is already on the to-do list and the calendar for the day and what's my, what's my day look like, I want to set the Lord before me, walking in His presence, His power, His love. Let's be honest, it is easier to follow the patterns of the world and stay noisy. This is one underlying reason you and I are prone to love the busy. We're prone to device addiction because it keeps us from silence and contemplation on the scriptures, which makes us nervous. But intentional and strategic moments of silence help us be attentive to the spirit and the spirit's formation of our souls, attentive to the truth of God's word. Listen to Psalm 5, 1 through 3. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sign. Pay, uh, pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. The psalmist, you are my King, my God, and because of that role in my life, 
the position you hold in the universe, I pray to you because I'm not king. I'm not God. And so I confess my dependence upon you and watch expectantly. I love that last phrase. The disciples who have gathered in this upper room are praying and watching expectantly. What will the Lord do? How will he answer? How will he reveal his faithfulness and goodness? And we'll see throughout the book of Acts, especially in the coming weeks, how the Lord's people are praying with expectant hearts and the Lord's powers on display. I pray we might learn and grow in this area as we track along that the people of God might be marked by a dependent, expectant prayer life. And no, we won't arrive this side of heaven. No one here would say, pray without ceasing, got that command, next, right? If, if, if so, let's talk. But come on. None of us would say, arrive, doctorate, got it, pray without ceasing, let's move on to rejoice in all circumstances. Because if I got that, then I'm definitely going to get this one. But we are going to grow in this. We won't arrive in perfection. William already spoke to it. But we will make progress by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, in unity with one another. Because this is what the people of God do. We make progress for His glory. In the midst of pressing life demands, we read this in Mark 1, 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, made his way to a deserted place, and there he, Jesus, was praying. And then, verses 36 and 37, we read Simon, Simon Peter and his companions, searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. So Simon Peter is the one who finds Jesus, interrupts him like a kid just bursting into the room. What are you doing, Jesus? There's work to be done, people to minister to, a kingdom to advance, healings to take place. Jesus, let's go. We're wasting time. No time has ever been wasted in prayer. I've wasted some time on some things, and so have you. No time has ever been wasted talking to our Father in heaven all the time and about everything. And Jesus will go and do all these things. He won't hide in the wilderness. He's not a lazy Savior. But before his day begins, before the to-do list starts to move to a to-done uh, to list, Jesus will spend time with his Father in heaven, which sets the tone for the rest of the day, and he will continue to spend time with his Father in heaven as he goes. It's not a compartment. It's a thread through all of life. And so now we see the progress that Peter's made from Mark 1 to Acts 1. When Peter's flesh is prone to a self-sufficiency that wants to conquer the world and cut off ears, Peter and the others remain here in a posture of prayerful waiting because they've made progress by, by the power of the Lord. Expecting and believing the Lord to move and lead. Verse 14 again, they all were continually united in prayer. As a church, we're going to grow in these habits of being obedient to his word and a, a life of prayer alongside one another in the family of faith. This group of Jesus followers is united, and yet at the same time, this is a diverse group. Let's just look at the 11 to begin with. They're common, ordinary men. None of them were educated in formal schools. None of them were part of the influential religious group. There are family relationships among the group, brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew. Andrew's the one that actually brought Peter to the Lord, and yet Andrew takes a back seat to Peter's leadership in the book of Acts. You had strong-willed men who were prone to argue, 
including in the upper room of all places, about who's going to have the place of honor and who's going to sit here, who's going to take a back seat, whose name is going to be remembered. There were guys who were in business together as fishermen. There were those from opposing political views. Matthew, for instance, was friendly to Rome. He worked as a Roman tax collector. Simon the Zealot, eh, on the other hand, hated Rome. So among the first 12, let alone the 120, you have siblings, business partners, people from different socioeconomic classes, political backgrounds, men, women. You know the things that typically divide and lead to disagreement. And yet none of those earthly connections become the primary connections among this group. It's Jesus Christ who has called them, who they are following. It's their shared devotion to and trust in Jesus that unites them, tethers them, and us to this day in unity. As we track along in Acts, we'll see phrases such as, they are of one mind, or they were all together. And the diversity of the 11, or the 120, or the thousands that are coming in Acts 2, let alone the millions afterwards, as the church expands, the diversity is only going to grow. But Jesus said it would. It shouldn't come as a surprise for the commission in Acts 1.8 said it's going to go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The good news of Jesus is for Jew and Gentile, for God so loved the world. This is a global mission that we are on. Diverse backgrounds and yet unified in worship to the one who's brought us together by grace alone through faith alone. Then in the rest of this section, we see the gathered disciples move, from a, move through the process of replacing Judas taking the 11 apostles back to the number of 12. And in this, we continue to see their dependence upon God's word and prayer. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language that field is known as Akeldedmah, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it and let someone else take his position. So why 12 apostles? Why, why do they feel compelled to replace Judas? First of all, Jesus had chosen 12, or 12 disciples originally in the gospel accounts. He had chosen 12 because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was formed into 12 tribes. And despite the nation of Israel's continued rebellion to the Lord, rather than worshipful obedience, the Lord maintained a faithful remnant who would continue the mission of the Lord. The mission described in Genesis 12 that through the people of God, all the peoples of this earth would be blessed. Jesus, the promised Messiah, comes in the flesh, and as he begins his earthly ministry, he chooses 12 disciples. What the Lord promised in Genesis will come to, come to pass, for the faithful Lord's plans never fail. They never come up short. One commentary wrote this, the twelvefold witness was required if early Jewish Christianity was to represent itself to the Jewish nation as the culmination of Israel's hope and the true people of Israel's Messiah. 
And the first people that the church is on mission to, Acts 1 through 7, is that of the Jewish nation. So in the midst of this first church meeting of 120, Peter stands up, begins to take the lead, saying Judas was numbered among the 12. He had a share in the ministry. We need to replace him with another apostle. One commentator made this note, which I thought was good. What leads to the replacement of Judas is not his death per se. It's his apostasy, his betrayal, his departure, his rejection of Jesus. These other 11 apostles will die in the future. Acts 12.2 tells us that James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, will die for his faith. No replacement is made or noted of at that time. Rather, as one author wrote, once a faithful member becomes the replacement, the effort to have 12 is not to be continued perpetually. So Peter stands and recounts what has occurred to Judas, why they are in need of replacing him. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, bought a field with the money, and then proceeded to commit suicide in his guilt. And Luke, being the doctor, gives detail into the horrific death of Jesus. Very family-friendly. The sovereign plans for the Lord have not been hindered by Judas's betrayal. What, has in, what was intended for evil, God has redeemed and turned it for good, the saving of many lives. Peter quotes from two Old Testament passages in verse 20. The first half is Psalm 69.25. The second half is Psalm 109.8. In the quote from Psalm 69, Jesus is applying it to Judas, saying that judgment has fallen upon Judas, who became an enemy of the righteous Jesus, that the enemies of the Lord and the wrongs they have committed will be judged. Judas serves as an example and a warning to the early church. That's one reason why Luke is descriptive in his detail. Later in verse 25, Peter says that Judas went to where he belonged, which is referring to hell, judgment in hell. In the quote from Psalm 109, Peter's saying it's right and legitimate to replace Judas. So Peter's not acting apart from the scriptures. He's, he's quoting Old Testament scriptures. He's seeking to live in accordance with them. The early church was a church boldly and courageously on mission. But they were not independent mavericks operating apart from the Lord's word or his commands. Their boldness came from the Spirit, not their self-will. Verse 21 and 22, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there are the qualifications for a, for a disciple. You must be an eyewitness of the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their witness testimony must be informed, trustworthy, as this early church goes out and proclaims the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We used this, we used this illustration last week of, of a baton being passed. Well, as the gospel baton gets passed from one to the other, it needs to be trustworthy. And so the 12 apostles must be personal eyewitnesses to the life and the resurrection of Jesus. So who is where they go next? Verses 23 through 26. So they propose to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts, Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, 
and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Neither of these men are mentioned again in the New Testament. Matthias ends up being chosen. Some historians say he suffered martyrdom for his faith in Ethiopia later on. He serves as a foundational apostle to the early church, and yet as it should be with them or with us, it's the name of Jesus that continues. It's the name of Jesus that is proclaimed generation after generation, not our name. Now, the casting of lots is weird to us in a Western mind, but it wasn't to them. In Israel, it was a time-honored way of determining God's will. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the, lot, into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the casting of lots is like a roll of the dice, a flip of a coin. But while it appears to us as if they are leaving it to chance, instead it reveals they're entrusting the Lord to lead. Both of these candidates are qualified to be apostles. They only need one. 11 plus one is 12, not 11 plus two. So even in the casting of lots, it reveals this group of 120, they're dependent upon, they're trusting in the Lord to lead in all things, even in this decision. Keep in mind the context. They are a people who are waiting. It's often in the waiting when we are tempted to depend upon other things. When we are tempted to disobey the word because we get impatient, because we begin to think, I got a better way. Or we're tempted to forget praying. Let's just start moving. Let's acting. Let, let, let's produce. Let's, let's go out and create thinking we can do a better job than the eternal sovereign Lord who again rode off on a cloud. Or tempted to forget trying to live in the context of an imperfect family of faith by His grace because we just want to be a lone ranger. We just want to be in a self-righteous island unto ourselves. In Acts 1, the early church is actively, prayerfully waiting. And as they wait, they are remaining dependent upon and trusting in the Lord. They're listening to His word and they're obeying, trusting that His, his commands are for their good. They're praying with expectant hearts. They're confessing with their lips that they're in need of the Lord and His grace and His power. They're pursuing unity with one another. Unity that is expressed in their relationships, that's showing up in their shared devotion to Jesus and his mission, that what he's begun, he will continue when the Spirit comes. As we prepare to pray and return to singing, I, I want to read to you a short excerpt from Jacob and Katie DeValve's recent mission update. The DeValves are part of the Ethnos 360 team, uh, along with LeBlancs and Ames, who we support as a church on mission to reach the Kuyu people, an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea, which, by the way, all three of those households will be at Crosspoint in the coming months at different times, so that will be a sweet gift for us as a church. But Jacob and Katie write this, Life in a village context is both slow and fast, but always pretty overwhelming, and it brings us frequently to the end of ourselves. But the Lord has been faithful to meet us there providing peace when we need it most and reminding us that it's a good thing, all caps, to know we can't do this and it feels too hard. That's where we are supposed to be, in a place where we know we are weak and need help only the Lord can provide. It's certainly uncomfortable to live like that all the time, but we wouldn't trade this hard for anything since we get to watch the Lord work over and over in ways we couldn't have imagined. 
we eagerly work towards the day where we can share God's word with the Kuyu. They write, it's a good thing to know we can't do this on our own. It's a good thing to be in a place where we know we are weak and need help. And the Lord is present and the Lord is able and it's only the Lord that can provide such help. The 120 disciples in that upper room, they understood that. May we understand that as well. May we confess the same truth. May we be a people utterly dependent and wholeheartedly trusting in our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord Jesus, as we pray in the silence, I pray that you'd speak to us. May you give us ears to hear, hearts humble to receive, attentive to your spirit, to your preached word. We pray the words of Psalm 5. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sign. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. So let's spend the next minute or so praying, enjoying his silence, talking to our Father in heaven. Lord, we need you every hour of every day, not just on a Sunday morning. Thank you that you are near and present and speaking, and we as your servants are listening. Give us attentive ears and eyes this morning, and give us attentive eyes and ears and hearts that are open in the week ahead. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, says this, Therefore, since we have such a since since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of that reality, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find, help, find grace to help us in our time of need.